This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We make things sacred because something happened. People witness that somehow this larger invisible reality of the divine broke into our material world and it changed us. We were transformed by it. So let's create something that signifies that meaningful moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Scott Erickson. He's a touring painter, performance storyteller, and creative curate who mixes autobiography, biblical narrative, and visual aesthetics that speak to our deepest experiences. He's currently touring his multimedia storytelling piece, Say Yes, a liturgy of not giving up on yourself, and is the co-author of Prayer, 40 Days of Practice, and May It Be So, 40 Days with the Lord's Prayer. Today we're talking about his recent book, Honest Advent, 25 Readings for Advent and Christmas. It's available October 20th, 2020, but it is available for pre-order now as you are hearing this. Scott Erickson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. So glad to be here. So I want to start my conversation with you with a moment that comes, I guess, about a third of the way through Honest Advent. You are visiting some friends in Atlanta, and you are stopped in your tracks by a painting. And the painting holds your attention for a number of minutes, and you you end up asking your friends, what is this painting? Where did it come from? It's a painting of Eve and Mary, the mother of Jesus. But I would love for you to tell my audience a little bit about what it was that caught your attention about that painting. Yeah, it might have been the context in which I came across it, which was in the restroom. So, you know, I went into the restroom to do the things. And as I'm in there, you know, I noticed the wall art and the print is smallish, you know, it's like a five by seven. But as I looked at it, I it hit, it just took my attention 
not only was it just because of the juxtaposition of these two kind of matriarchs of faith and the interaction, you know, these, this kind of from like a theological, like here's the Eve, you know, the beginning of all women. And here's Mary, the woman asked to bring into Christ into the world. And so this kind of like cosmic who's who's party, it was happening, but what really got me and, and the original is by sister Grace Remington was the look that these two moms had for each other. And that I think is what hit me. It, it, it was this like, there wasn't any voice boxes that are having a conversation. Like Mary has taken Eve's hand and put it on her, her stomach that is getting large with the baby. And they just have this look of motherhood. Like, and, and what Eve is like saying to Mary, like you have been called by God to do this great thing. And motherhood is this wonderful thing. And yet it also has a lot of heartbreak as well. And knowing friends of mine who have had miscarriages or children that then they lose too early or just all the the risk of loving and bringing something into the world and loving it and and the risk of it being taken away all of that if according to the story of Eve you know one of her sons gets murdered by the other son and we know that Mary eventually loses her son to crucifixion so we're there's these two moms who lose their kids too early and it just brought all of that into that conversation and, and it blew me away. Admittingly, because I'm a man <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm married and I have children. I've witnessed close hands, not only from having a mom, but then being with my wife as she is a mom. But I, I do think that there's this kind of secret conversation of motherhood that I don't know if I'll ever be if I could ever really understand, because I think some of it is without words. Some of it is an embodied conversation. And I just, it, this image that Sister Grace did just, it blew me away. I felt like it, in the simple image, it invited me into this huge universal, since the beginning of time, conversation about how hard it is to be a mom. Well, and that struck me because one of the things that you point out in your book, Honest Advent, is how little we actually know from the stories about Eve and how little we actually know from the stories about Mary. And you point out we have a lot of traditions that have grown up around these two figures, but what the texts actually tell us is very small and and very limited in terms of what we actually know, not only about their actions, but their interior life. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, what struck you about this painting, this image, was how much it communicated about their interior lives just by watching the two of them together. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, that exactly. One of the the muses I use as a teacher is, I, I say this often, I even say this at the beginning of my Say Yes show. I say, the only reason we tell these old stories, like in every faith tradition, we tell old stories. And the only reason we do is because those stories are still happening today. It's not a story that just happened back then. It's still happening now. And that kind of muse helps me to dig in. You know, like (laughs) I joke sometimes, I think like the Bible is well-written kind of, you know, sometimes I wish like, you know, Anne Lamont wrote a chapter or something because, you know, it leaves a lot of things out. It's sometimes the way that in this ancient text is written in a certain way. It takes some kind of inferring or spending time with to really get this maybe emotional piece. It doesn't spend a lot of time going and here was the emotions of the person. Some passages do. Some have, we have 
accounts of crying and sorrow and grief and, and you know definitely in the poetic sections there's like a lot of, of the emotions but like yeah in describing these scenarios it's like Mary went here and then Mary had a baby and then Mary took the baby to the temple and it doesn't that kind of gets written in the baby books but there's so much more of what happens to you when you you are just a, a couple and then you become parents you know like every time a one of our children has come out of their mom it cracked us open and broke us open and and enlarged us in in ways that we didn't know was possible and and nobody in the text wrote that about what was happening to mary and joseph and so i guess in a way you know it gets really tricky when we want to like infer our own story onto ancient text but i think we can go if these people were human and these people partook in these very human activities what was happening to them and what was it like to bring about a child in a very scary and chaotic world, just like we're doing today? And that is where these stories, I feel like these, these are stories that are happening still right now, and we can find that life in these ancient stories. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Scott Erickson. He's a touring painter, performance storyteller, and creative curate who mixes autobiography, biblical narrative, and visual aesthetics that speak to our deepest experiences. We're talking about a book that is coming out later this fall, Honest Advent, 25 readings for Advent and Christmas. Well, I'd like my listeners to understand a little bit about your vocation. And so I've said a couple of times in introducing you that you're a touring painter and a performance storyteller and a creative curate. I'd love to find out what you mean by each of those terms. What's a touring painter? (laughs) It's trying to, you know, there, (laughs) there wasn't a lot of templates about the job I find myself in. And so when I describe to people... Like if I'm on a flight and they're like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a professional artist. It's like I did a magic trick in front of them. People are like, what? I don't know what you mean. You know, really, they're like, how do you make money? So I have developed some skills that are pretty unique. I mean, other people do some of these things, but the touring painter came from, I'm a trained painter and make studio work. But I, in my 20s, was really interested in bringing that making process in front of people. And so I started partnering with bands and speakers and would do this thing where I'd make a painting alongside what they were doing at events and ended up being at like large conferences and stuff. I have this particular invitation to the creative muse. That's like when I show up to a space and I go, how do you want us to see what's being talked about? Like an image just comes to me. And so I started just offering that to gatherings, to conferences and stuff like that. So I've spent years over a decade touring around being like a visual note taker or like creating like a visual translator to what is being discussed. So that's where like the touring painting came from. And I've also like gone on tours with bands and made paintings during shows. That's amazing. So just to make sure that I'm I'm clear and my audience is clear. So a band would be playing and you would be I'm hearing you almost like jazz. You'd be riffing off of what the images that you're getting as you're hearing these sounds, and you'd be you'd be putting them in real time up on a canvas or up on a wall or what anything or how how exactly does that work? Yeah, you know, if you Google image search live painters, there's plenty of them, and and I will say that most of that is very like abstract and kind of it's more about the emotion and the moving the body and stuff, and it's this very performance. I'm more boring than that. I mean, I, I, I would say my final product is, it's not a competition, but is better because I'm more of like 
a very, I'm not trying to make something abstract and emotion-based. I'm trying to make something that's like didactic and translating and, and narrative. And so I'm executing a complex painting in a short amount of time in front of an audience. Like with bands, like I went on tour with a couple bands, I would take some of the themes of their songs and I would come up with illustrations or kind of a picture of that and kind of like what what the show was about. And then I would just make that on stage in the background. You know, they're jumping all around and stuff. I might shake my hips and do things like that, but it's, I'm less of like a show. I'm kind of creating like a, I'm like a layer. I'm making like a backdrop as it's going on. And then with like speakers and stuff, I'm translating their talks into like a picture. So it's less about the expression of it and more about the, like the translating it into a different language, which is a visual language. And that's how more of I see it. It's less of a thing that's like, sit here and watch Scott Erickson for 20 minutes. You know, it's more like, this is going to be happening while this is going on. And it's just another layer to the whole thing. I think I'm following. And and I, I think I understand what a performance storyteller would be. But maybe for my listeners who may be less familiar with that as a craft, what does a performance storyteller do? So for me, being visually oriented, I think of communicating through really, and maybe it's because I'm ADD, through multiple avenues at the same time. And so when we're telling a story or talking about something, I'm thinking, here are the words that I would say to portray that story. Here is the image I would also be showing to portray that story. Here's the musical accompaniment that would let us get to an emotional state as we're telling that story. Here's how I'd be using my body or something on stage as that's happened. So, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like theater, but it's just me. So what I've started doing is when I communicate, my typical partners in communicating are a projector in a screen, and I'm holding a remote in my hand. Like, I'm not watching it. Like, let's go to the next slide. I'm using this as like a backdrop. I'm, I'm controlling the backdrop on what's going on. And then also built into that is music and stuff like that. And then I also have a canvas on stage and periodically I'm adding things to the canvas so that then the canvas becomes something at the end of the talk. And so they all kind of come together like a great, like I grew up reading Tom Clancy novels. And what was amazing is he would tell like 14 stories at the same time. And then at the end, he would just like tie them all up and you're like, that's amazing. And that that's kind of what I want to do when I take people on, I guess a journey as a group is like, we're going to come at it from all these different angles and then we're going to work our way and tie it all together. It's all going to come together and connect in a way you didn't expect. And I just want to make sure that I've heard this correctly. So when you're, when you're telling a story on stage, you'll have images from a projector or from a computer. You'll have images that you are creating on a canvas in real time, and you will have images that you are creating in the listener's mind. And your success, how you measure success, is if those things come and weave together by the end of your performance in the listener's mind in a way that sort of is greater than the sum of the parts. Am I hearing that right? Yes. What I've found over the years as I'm doing this is that like I know there are avenues of ways people learn and you know listening is one of the main ways but maybe you can attest to this or you've had this experience that you've gone to an hour long talk and then it, as you leave that talk 2 hours later somebody's like what was it about and you're like ah, I don't know there was so much and maybe you could have like little touch points or snippets or points or you'd have to look at your like notes to remember what it was i started realizing that like, people are going to forget all the things that I say. But what 
really lands and imprints in people is an image. And so really like I see my whole experiences as a delivery system for images. When I first started my show, Say Yes, when I first started doing it, I think like the fourth show was in Portland and a bunch of my friends came and afterwards, a couple days later, I called one of my friends and I said, Hey, what do you remember about the show? And she says, Hmm, I remembered you laid down, which is at the very end of the show. And I was like, perfect. Cause that's kind of what the whole show is about is this scene where we do, I don't want to give it away, but like I lay down and I, I embody this practice that I'm inviting people into. So from that, I was like, Oh, I'm really, what I can leave people is some kind of strong image. And so I want to orchestrate everything to have places that images can really land in people. Now, what lands in people is not up to me. So I'll provide a variety of things for people to, because really what you're also trying to do is bring up their own conversation about their life. You're trying to excavate their true, like kind of their deepest story and finding themselves in what you're talking about. And so my hope is like, yeah, at the end, cool, I did all these things and it came all together, but I want to excavate something out of you to when it all comes together, you find yourself in the middle of that story. And you're like, oh, this is my story too. It's not just this guy's story. It's my story as well. And that's my hope. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Scott Erickson. He's a touring painter, performance storyteller, and creative curate who mixes autobiography, biblical narrative, and visual aesthetics that speak to our deepest experiences. He's got a new book coming out this fall called Honest Advent, 25 readings for Advent and Christmas. We'll be back in a moment. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you'd like to hear more of these sorts of conversations, please visit our website at thingsnotseenradio.com. Today, we're talking with Scott Erickson. He's a touring painter, a performance storyteller, and a creative curate who mixes autobiography, biblical narrative, and visual aesthetics that speak to our deepest experiences. He's got a new book coming out this fall called Honest Advent, 25 Readings for Advent and Christmas. Well, I imagine that some of my listeners may be familiar with the word Advent, but then probably some are not. And maybe we should we should now take a moment and explain to listeners what Advent is in the Christian tradition. Yeah, Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, and they're allotted for a time of, I mean, Advent in Latin just means coming. And so it's the coming Christ, the coming Messiah is coming into our midst. And so we're in this place of anticipation. We're in this place of waiting. And just as like a pregnant mother is waiting for this birth, so too we're trying to open our soul, our spirit to this kind of waiting. And this thing that we'd always hoped for is coming into our midst. So it's just a way to like open, like, you know, take these faculties in us and just kind of open them up in anticipation and be aware of maybe things that what's going on in us and going on in our communities and stuff. And what are we looking for? And in all religion, 
a couple definitions that are helpful for me is to say like spirituality is when we make what's invisible visible. And then religion is just the practices, rhythms, rituals we create around that visibility. And so Advent is just mechanics to get to the essence. You know, it's, we have certain songs, certain elements like nativity scenes or lights or images or stuff like that to help us get to this deeper essence. And, and so the church calendar is based on these kinds of modes and flows and different things to just kind of give us a different way of responding or uh, having a place inside of us that's open in a different way for whatever season. For this season of Advent, it's like God becoming human, God being in our midst, God fulfilling the promise that we're not alone and we don't have to do this by ourselves. And so that is the kind of meditation that is with Advent. Well, and you mentioned a calendar, and I think this is the other way that listeners who may be unfamiliar with Advent within the tradition might be able to think about this if they have ever encountered an Advent calendar, which is a calendar where literally you are opening little doors of each of the days, and sometimes you open the doors and there's a little piece of candy or a little yeah, surprise. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah, you get some chocolates. <laughs> it's the best. And so what's happening is you're revealing something each day on the way to a major revealment, which, as you said, is in the Christian tradition— God becoming human in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so when we're talking about Advent as a season, we're talking about it both in terms of mental preparation, but it also sounds like there are rituals and there are things that people are expected to do. And that's the context in which I want to begin talking about your book, Honest Advent, because this is a book that is broken out much like an Advent calendar. It is put into a series of sections designed to create a set of meditative practices, a set of reflections on the way towards Advent. As I describe the book that way, as I describe my reading of the book that way, are you hearing the book that you wrote or would you correct me in some way and say it a different way? No, that's great. I I actually didn't make the connection with the Advent calendar, but it's, it's perfect. It, well, it was like Christmas Day is the 25th. So yeah, it was like I 25 days seems to make sense. It does align. Thank you for making that connection. <laughs> it's exactly it. It's like here, let's meditate on different aspects of the story for these days in, in hopes of finding Christ in our midst. Really for me, the, the whole thing is kind of going back to reading scripture or reading these stories is like, is this a story that just happened back then? Or is it a story that's happening now? I know Jesus like came out of Mary's womb back then. And I'm not saying is Jesus coming out of a womb now, but is like the incarnate Christ still being revealed in our midst and how, and how do we find it? Because frankly, like I've grown up in the United States and I really love Christmas. And I really love when the stations that come with all Christmas music, I'm like, woohoo, you know, saving it on my memory, on my radio. Like I'm listening to it and I love decorating and I love all this. I love all the stuff, but it was a few years ago that and I don't know how we feel about the, the, how the world's going, but it, it, it was uh, the last election cycle, which felt really divisive, tragic civil war in Syria, Zika virus, mass school shootings. And it just, we, I felt like the end of the year was super, we were all exhausted and beat up. And then like the blanket of the Christmas brand, you know, sprinkled on everything. And I just, I think I was like at a CVS or a Target or something. And I was like, this feels meaningless <laughs> compared in contrast to what's going on in the world. And it, it really started this kind of conversation in me, which is just like, is, 
like, can we still expect Jesus in our midst? And where is Jesus? I say in the book, is Christmas a memorial service or is it a birthday party? And I, if you ask any kid at church, they'll say like, it's Jesus's birthday. It's a birthday party. So I'm like, where's the birthday boy? You know, like where, if it's a party, it means it's still happening now. Where's the party? Where do we find Jesus in our midst now? And so the, and this is the meditations and this is my journey and what the book is. This really begins to, so we've begun to talk about what Advent is, and now you're leading very naturally into what my next question is. Where does the honest come from in the title Honest Advent? What do you mean when you say we need to be more honest about Advent? What's being hidden? What's being lied about? What's not being honest in the Advent? You've begun to answer that question, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, that's a great question. I think a a major shift that happened to me, and since we've already referenced Say Yes, I talk about this, because Say Yes is a it's a conversation about giving up in a way it's, it's a church service about suicide because I've never been to one. And I was like, how do you take difficult topics and make like a weird liturgy about it? But one of the things I say and say, yes, is like, because I think suicide really confronts a lot of religion is that the problem is when we make God a product is if that product doesn't work anymore, we get rid of it. And I think in your evolution, if you're a person of faith, is that you're told a number of things of what to expect from God or what believing in God would insulate you from or do. And then when you get into the complexity and messiness of being a human being, you realize that those kind of promises fail. And when people talk about deconstructing or leaving their faith, they're basically going like, you promised me it would do this. You promised me it would clean my bathroom or my toilets and it didn't, you know, and he said, you promised leaving a God would make me not have to go through these awful things and it, and it didn't. And so I think in the same way with Advent, what we really want is an honest hope. What we really want is a hope that isn't a false hope that just gives like nice pleasantries, but really in the face of any kind of suffering falls apart. And so honest Advent was like, how can I be really honest about this coming Because where I want to get to is that it would lead me to an honest hope, a robust hope in the world that's very complex and chaotic and has very valid arguments that there is no God and we're on our own. I mean, the audacity for God, for Jesus to have a name that says you're with us (laughs) is it's something I think about often because it's really like, are you, are you with us? I mean, if we just, if you're listening to this right now in your life, is your real question like, does God exist or not? Or is your real question, is God with me in my life now is with us in all of this that is so honest advent was trying to like go if i'm in this this state of waiting and and this coming how can i be really honest about the state of the world and the state of myself that i find myself in because i really want an honest hope if you're just joining us this is things not seen i'm david dalt and today we're talking with scott erickson he's a touring painter performance storyteller and creative curate who mixes autobiography biblical narrative and visual aesthetics that speak to our deepest experiences he's got a new book coming out later this fall called honest advent 25 readings for advent and christmas well this was one of the things that really struck me about the book is that it is bringing in these kinds of stories. You talk about your own moments of breakdown, your own moments of times when you have felt overwrought 
by circumstances, but you also are talking about other people's experiences and common experiences that we have of frustration and of and of the the messiness of life. And when I say messiness, I don't simply mean the emotional messiness, but also the fact that we have bodies and that bo- <laughs> yeah. bodies sometimes yep. are goopy things. Yep. And and so let's let's dig in a little bit to that. So so I'm hearing why you wanted to take the advertising sheen off of Advent and have a more honest Advent, but that took you to explore some very human themes and experiences. I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, yeah. I There's one chapter called Sacred, and in it I have a fairly nude pregnant woman holding her like aching back. And it is an image that I witnessed my pregnant and in back pain wife when she she was pregnant with our third child, like getting out of bed, just being like, my body hurts so bad. I say it in the book. I'm like, look, I'm not a woman, but I've, I live with one. And I, (laughs) I've witnessed three pregnancies up close and there is a risk and a vulnerability and a cost to pregnancy, to bringing something in the world. And yet it's worth it. Mothers do it because of love. And my meditation kind of, so seeing this kind of sanitized, commercialized Christmas brand, it felt very shallow to me. And so where I started looking for help was to get into the embodiment that the incarnation suggests, that this invisible spirit, this deity, this divine love would incarnate into a physical, material, finite body with all its aches and pains and goopy fluids as well. And my wife was pregnant at the time of this, that I was meditating on this. So I was watching close hand, you know, and I know it's like pretty common in churches and stuff. They'll be like, it's Advent. Let's have a pregnant lady get up and talk about her experience, you know? And we have, maybe we've witnessed that too, but I was like seeing the heartburn and the diarrhea and the, like all the things I was like, wow, we don't really talk about that in our sacred spaces. So I just, as an artist, was like, let's push into it. Let's go deeper into this kind of embodied biology and making some illustrations about that. And that felt really comforting because it, so what I get into the sacred story is like, in that chapter is to say like, we make things sacred because something happened. People witness that somehow this larger invisible reality of the divine broken into our material world and it changed us. We were transformed by it. So let's create something that signifies that meaningful moment. So we set it apart and that's what making something sacred is. We're setting it apart. But what happens in that is we tend to throw away the kind of embarrassing humanity of it all. And what I think is another fruit of that is that Because we do that, we then begin to dismiss ourselves from sacred experiences. Because we understand that we're beset with like (laughs) uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, bowel movements, all that stuff. And we forget that the women and men who found themselves in these same sacred stories had the same things too. I'm sorry if this is a little crass, but I just, I like to say to people, I'm like, look, the Pope has diarrhea and Mother Teresa had a monthly period. You know, like we are this mix of sacredness and biology at the same time. 
And every sacred story that exists in the world exists with that juxtaposition, that paradox of opposites. And so for us to see Christ in our midst is to embrace that we too can be a mixture of sacred moments and poop jokes, you know, like we can be, we are that, that is where the divine breaks into our lives. And so that was some of the invitation was like, we have to get really honest about (laughs) what is it like to live in a body because it's in our body that we're going to experience God. This is why your book was so profound for me. It opened up for me some things that I had never thought about before. So I had thought about the incarnation. I had thought about God becoming a human in the person of Jesus Christ. But before I read your book, I had never thought about the process that Mary went through carrying Jesus into the world. And there was one particular image that just floored me. Mary had morning sickness. While God was coming into the world, someone was literally throwing up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, the, yeah. the, this to me, I found that incredibly liberating. It gave me a different way to think about the way in which God chose to become intimate with our human experiences. It was very powerful. And you, you said that it was, uh, you, you apologized for making it a little bit crass. I think that those aspects of the book are some of the most powerful parts of this book. The points where a reader suddenly has their eyes opened and says, I've never thought about it that way before. So one thing that I want to ask you about is you made the choice not just to talk about the incarnation of Jesus in this retelling of Advent and these meditations on Advent, but you focused a lot on his mother, on Mary. Talk to Mm -hmm. me about that choice, because that doesn't always happen when the Advent stories are being told. Yeah, well, Mary had, I come from a Protestant tradition, and, you know, whenever we would come across Catholics or the Catholic tradition, after we left, we'd be like, wow, those people are really obsessed about Mary. (laughs) Like they painted her on their walls. That's crazy. They prayed to her. But I actually became really good friends with a Catholic minister when I lived in Houston, Texas. And he just showed me all about his practices and, and, and stuff. And And one of the things that he would tell me is like, we spent a lot of time with Mary because Mary was given like a really amazing invitation to partake in something that nobody else ever had. And so she, in a way, becomes a go-between for like these difficult or unknown or mysterious interactions with God. And what I get into and what I play with, because often when you say incarnation, people just think, well, Jesus incarnated. But what I've noticed as a parent is that I write about this as like children come into the world a certain way. You know, there is this like kind of environment and molding and sculpting them that you're, that you're given as a parent. But one of the jobs as a parent is to try to notice what they already are and then to help that become its greatest flourishing. And so just like Jesus incarnated. And look, I I don't know what's before or after this. I'm not an expert in that, but like all of us incarnated too. All of us came from somewhere into this. We came, we came from the unseen into the scene. And when we die, we go back into the unseen, whatever that is. And so obviously Christmas is the focus on Jesus and Jesus. I said, Jesus had extracurricular activities other than we do. But Jesus really embodied what it's like to be a human. And so by, by we see Jesus, we see God willing to partake in human vulnerability, it means that the, what we're offered is that same participation, to partake in human vulnerability. And Mary, because we do get a bit of her story, 
we were able to see like particular vulnerabilities that she was asked to do because of a woman at the time in society, she didn't have a lot of power. There wasn't a lot of platforms for her to speak out. And so like her kind of questionable pregnancy offered all kinds of difficult situations. And yet she was still going through and God provided a way. And then all the people around her, like her relatives and her husband, and then all of these things, all of a sudden, like all of these people find themselves in very complex human relationship dynamics of shame and expectation and all this stuff. And, and God seemingly isn't trying to please everybody. You know, like, that's the thing. Like now you, (laughs) you think about posting anything online and you're like, does this please everybody? But like the incarnation of God didn't check all the lists on like, this is how you do it. And so that invites us to go like, Hmm, maybe the way that God is working something in my life or bringing something in is in a way that I don't expect or think it should be. And that helps me pay more attention or like when you're bringing back to the morning sickness in that one, we talk about unease, like the presence of God felt uneasy. And maybe there's times in your life that the presence of God in your life is uneasy too. In the times you're asked to grow and move on and evolve and make hard decisions or be kinder to yourself, or those don't feel comfortable, but maybe that is the presence of God in your life right now. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you enjoy these kinds of conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, where you can download and listen to all of our previous episodes for free. Today, we're talking to Scott Erickson. He's a touring painter, performance storyteller, and creative curate who mixes autobiography, biblical narrative, and visual aesthetics that speak to our deepest experiences. He's got a new book coming out later this fall called Honest Advent. It's available for pre-order now. It's 25 readings for Advent and Christmas. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you like what you're hearing, please do go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you can download for free all of our episodes and listen to your heart's content. Today, we're speaking to Scott Erickson. He's a touring painter, performance storyteller, and creative curate who mixes autobiography, biblical narrative, and visual aesthetics that speak to our deepest experiences. He's got a new book coming out later this fall. It's available for pre-order now. It's called Honest Advent, 25 readings for Advent and Christmas. Well, we've been talking about the structure of this book and how it's divided into 25 meditative readings designed to guide the reader towards Advent. But it's not just that, because each of these readings is also accompanied by a painting that you have done. And I would love to hear a little bit about the process by which you approached the publisher and you said, listen, I've got an idea, 
it's an idea for an Advent reflection book, but it's not just going to be Advent reflections, but it's also going to be visual as well as textual. How did you sell that to your publisher? How did you sell that to your editor? How did you how did you make them understand what it was that you were trying to convey? Did you bring them examples or did you tell me about that process? Oh yeah, I brought a very robust pitch deck which just is like a PDF that is going, here's all the things that you want to know why I'm a good gamble on giving me a deal. But what I started with is I started with, I collected all the really amazing comments that I had gotten on Instagram. So I post on Instagram often and have a great following, but Instagram is a place that I try a lot of things out. And this is the first place I started trying these images out. I just talked about what I was going through and I made these illustrations and they like blew up. This is, you know, three, four years ago. I think I made six, a lot of like birthing ones. And I had an overwhelming response from people, mostly from women who told me, they said, even though these are graphic in nature, they're very honoring to my experience. In fact, I, nobody's ever really like allowed the reality of birth to really be seen. I mean, there are some like pretty poignant paintings if you look for it, but mostly like in our tradition of seasonal art, we see Jesus who's like (laughs) baby Jesus, who's like already cleaned and he's probably already four months old and he's chubby and he's, you know, everything's very sanitized. And I get it because nobody wants to see the like alien looking baby that they hand you at the hospital. But I think what happened over time is in order to make beautiful aesthetic things, it took away from actually the real experience that women were having in pregnancy. And so that was amazing. That was really unexpected. And I felt very honored and humbled by that. And then the next few years, I tried more and more and more. And so actually when I was, so this last year, I was like, oh, I have 20 images. If I just did five more, that's 25 days. So what I did is I asked people, I said, hey, if you really love this, would you write why you did? And I got over a hundred emails from women and men who were like, I have these images hanging in my house. They have opened up the story to me in ways that I never, that I thought I couldn't get back. I thought I was over Christmas and this brought it back. And I just put all that in the, <laughs> in the pitch deck. I was just like, look, Here's how people are responding to it. And that convinced them. I, you know, there's other things like, what's your influence? And can you put a book together? And we want to see some of the writing, you know? And so it, there's all of that too. But really it was, the audience was already there. The audience had already like tested it and vetted it and said, in, in fact, I put all the messages that I had had that people are like, if you make this into a book, I will buy 50 copies and hand it to all my friends. And that's what publishers want to hear. So I'm hoping that happens. <laughs> Thank you for walking us through that process. But that dovetails with something, and it's a passing comment in the book, but it really struck me. You say at one point in your book, Honest Advent, I come from a Protestant tradition, and we really don't have a strong visual vocabulary. I'd love to mm. hear a little bit more about why you made that comment. What do you mean that Protestants are not so good with the visual aspect of their faith? Yeah, well, I grew up in a a Lutheran Brethren church, which basically looked like a turned upside down Viking ship. And it had nothing on the walls. We won't bore everybody with the long history of the Reformation, but it all stems from the Catholic church at the time was very ornate and big and big buildings and lots of art and all that stuff, which is wonderful. 
but there was a bit of corruption and, you know, paying for your sins, sins to be forgiven and all this kind of stuff. And so from Luther and the printing press and all of that stuff, Protestantism was really trying to swing so far the opposite way, which is like, all we need is a book. We don't need anything else. And so the tradition Protestantism is based kind of out of like this rejection of all the other like bells and whistles. And uh, it was like, all we need is a book. So that's the kind of culture I grew up in that just had kind of like laid a symbology aside. It kept a cross, it kept, you know, a dove maybe, you know, but really a cross, that's it. And, and then that's all, that's all we had. And so I always felt like a stranger growing up in church because there was just no pictures. We got pictures when we were kids, like in, you know, cartoons at Sunday school and stuff. But it was when I became more of an adult. Actually, it's probably when my parents took my brother and I, when I was 13, to Paris. And I first visited kind of these massive cathedrals and these churches and saw, like, I was like, oh, I just grew up in the wrong tradition. <laughs> like there, All of this is here. I just didn't know about it. So partly, not just with this book, but partly my work as a visual artist and as a person of faith is trying to give a newer, updated or contextually relevant symbol set to people in their spiritual journeys. To go across is great. I actually have had to do a lot of work on like understanding the cross because I think it's actually a really misunderstood symbol. But like, how do you describe forgiveness? How do you talk about what, you know, what becoming a new creation looks like? You know, there's all this, this, this spiritual talk and we don't have any pictures for it. So I've been trying to, in my own life, like kind of with my own spiritual therapy is like devising and developing this like visual language for people to help make sense of what's going on with them. And that's what I've been doing. I so appreciate that answer. And as, as I was listening to you, what came to mind is there's a wonderful book. It's my wife's favorite book by a, a writer by the name of Chaim Potok called My Name is Asher Lev. Oh. And, and it, it's about, you say, oh, uh, maybe you, you're familiar with it. But, for, but for, oh, yes. for listeners that are unfamiliar, it's about a young child named Asher Lev who's born into a very conservative, Hasidic, Orthodox Jewish community. And he has this desire to be visual and to paint. And he it's almost from, from birth, he's unable to not be making visual images. And his entire community completely misunderstands and thinks that this is coming almost from a demonic place, not from a place of beauty. As you were speaking, I kind of, I, I thought of, my name is Asher Lev, and the kind of experience that you had where you were bursting with these visual images in your heart, in your mind, but you were looking around you and you didn't see anything of it reflected in your worship spaces. Now, when I make that connection, you, you've begun to sort of say that you've, you've got some resonance with that, but am, am I hitting on something here? Uh, well, first, I'm humbled and honored by that. That book, that book changed my life. In, in uh, like, I remember finishing it in the <laughs> Copenhagen airport and just like crying a bit going, oh, wow. I mean, it's a fantastic book, but yet it made so much sense. And specifically what Potok is doing, where it's like, He's going like, what is the cost of trusting this inner call, even if it's against like the society you grew up in? And what if you were to lose that connection in order to seek the call? And that in, in a way I've, I've had to, I had a moment, I've had moments, but I definitely had a specific moment where I had to make that decision myself. And it often happens in obscurity when nobody's like, watching you because there's no outside influences, but I had this moment, it was a few years ago where my studio was 
literally in a basement with no windows and they kept trash down there once a week. So it smelled. And I just, I remember having this moment where I was like, I wasn't involved with anything and not in a downer way, but I remember saying like, nobody cares what I'm doing because I wasn't, I wasn't like working for anybody. I was just self-employed. And the question to me that I heard was just like, well, what do you want to talk about? Well, what are you going to make? And I, I just remember sitting in that basement studio going, yeah, I really hate how we talk about God, at least in the culture I'm front. I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I, so I want to talk about it differently. It's just like, I don't understand what we're talking about. And then I was like, and I, I don't love the images we have of all of this. It's all invented. Like it's all invented. And so I was like, I want to, I want to make something that I feel is, is honest and true and, and yet beautiful and interesting it was in that moment that I just had to say, like, I don't care. This is what I want to make. And that, and I, and I started plowing forward in that, you know, courageously. I have my moments of self-doubt for sure. <laughs> but like, it's when you just like, screw it. I don't know if this resonates with anybody. I'm just going for it because I know this is the truest thing I can say yes to. And that's, that's what I've been doing. As you're saying that, I'm moved to ask do you feel like your work, your painting, your artistry, do you feel like that has over the years brought you closer to God and deeper in your faith? Or has it been a sort of journey in the wilderness that has made you feel pulled away from your faith and maybe your faith community? No, it's definitely the way that I process and make sense and understand the world, existence, God is through creativity. So it is the process of taking a question and forming and finding the answer. Maybe not the absolute answer, but at least a doorway to some kind of stepping stone on the, on the mysterious journey we find ourselves in. And so I have either decided to or come to understand that my process of image making is my process of seeking the divine. It is interesting in retrospect that people have started to know my work I think because of the rise of Instagram. I mean, even Facebook a little bit, but like Instagram specifically a, a image-based platform. And I have been developing a symbol set and artwork for over a decade, but it's only been in like the last like five years where these things are shareable and kind of a thing that then that became like a currency on these platforms. And so then there's been this big kind of explosion. So and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the obscurity of having to like work really hard and find something true and work on that. Cause I would have hated if that started early. Cause that probably would have, I don't know, influenced how I do stuff now, but I think that's where the prevalence has risen, but it had always been what I'm getting to is it had always been kind of my secret conversation with God. My illustrating, my drawing, my painting was my private conversation with the divine and it wasn't really until there became like a platform where I could share some of that, that then I was going, oh, like, right now, like often what I do is I'll work my own prayers out with God in my pen and ink and iPad and stuff. And then I'll throw it on Instagram and be like, maybe this is helpful for you, you know, but it always starts with my own, my own, I, I start with it. I can't, it's, it's just a good rule of creativity is you can't, you can't invite an audience or a viewer into a transformation that you're not willing to do yourself first. So you have to do it on yourself. And then if you find that it's like, this is good, that's when you deliver it to others. 
That sounds like a tremendous act of trust. You are inviting strangers into a process that sounds deeply intimate. And sometimes I imagine you're ripping yourself apart and kind of building yourself back up together again. And then you're putting that out there and saying, do you like it? Talk to me about the trust that's there. Is is that trust always there or does it ebb and flow? Well, uh, well, I, I am not brave enough to say, do you like it? <laughs> like I, that, that would be, I would trip up a lot on that. I, I, I mean, it just depends on what it is. Like even now I'm working on a project. I look at Jesus as an interesting model of, I have three people that I kind of run my early drafts through. And then I have like 12 and then I have like 70, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I don't, I don't always show like, the early rough drafts of stuff to everybody. I just, I, you know, that, but like certain things, you know, a platform like Instagram is, is fine. Cause it's like, it comes and goes. And so I don't think there's like this, like, this is going to be a printed book forever and ever. So there's a bit of play and experimenting on there, but I have just come from my experience with art, come to understand that you're actually the things, and it's this weird mystery, but the, the things that are most, personal and like particular tend to be where people connect universally. Like, even if you just are like, here's who I am. I'm, I grew up in outside of Seattle, Washington, along the Puget Sound in a little town called Mukilteo. And I'd hear ferry boats and see orca whales. And, you know, if I got really specific about my story, somebody from a different part of the world would be like, I didn't grow up there, but I had those particulars too. Like it's when you get too general that things don't have any power, but it's in the particularities that like somehow this like deeply universal connection happens. So I just trust that process. I just trust that like, if I'm not lying to myself and I'm being honest, like the other day, I, I don't know about you, but COVID hasn't been my favorite time of my life. And um, I've had a canceled tour and canceled dates. And I was often my practice in the morning is I wake up really early, make some coffee and I go walk around my neighborhood. And, and my prayer my honest prayer that morning was just like, I have so much more to offer than just being a homebody. <laughs> and, and yet I'm going to trust that the work that happens with me being a homebody is going to help me do when everything kind of opens up or, you know, comes back to whatever it is like that. Maybe there'll be some better meant of myself to come back in and do things better, you know? So maybe this is the process of being better. And so in that is very honest to go, I have a lament. I hate what's happening, right? I hate, I don't like a lot of aspects of my life, but I'm going to trust that this could be the groundwork for something different. I made an illustration about that and I shared that on Instagram. And people have been like, I feel the exact same way. That's exactly how I feel. Or that is what I needed to hear today. You know what I'm saying? So, because I think that's, and this is what Honest Advent is getting into is like, I know if you've done any cross-cultural travel and stuff, like there are differences in the way we perceive things, but we're also these like deeply innate feelings and emotions as human beings that we can all connect with. And I'm trying to add that and bring that out and help people connect in their own conversations with God or their lives through those kind of emotional feelings and, and connections. At the beginning of the Christian story, we're told God is a gardener. And then when Jesus shows up, we're told that Jesus is a carpenter. And then as we're getting these images of God from the prophets, we're told God is a potter and we're the clay. Is it possible that God's a painter? 
yeah, I hope so. I mean, his color theory is great, you know, like, like you can witness it all around you. I mean, what I've come to understand about being an artist is everything is here. Everything you need is already here. And what it is, is you're gathering the materials and, and bringing it together in an unexpected way. And I think that God is inviting us from, from what I've come to understand is like God is inviting us to co-create in the world that it created. And we're invited to be co-creators in that world. And so the creation comes in a partnership about listening and knowing and understanding, but then in like participating and gathering and finding these things and putting it together. And that co-creation is the delight. So I, I think God could be a painter or a collager or any kind of fabricator because the delight is in the process of discovering these this newness and, and participating. And, and I feel like that's a divine flow. And anytime I'm doing creative work, I feel it. Well, Scott Erickson, I so enjoyed your book, Honest Advent, 25 Readings for Advent and Christmas. I want to tell my listeners that if you're looking for a gift or something to help you center yourself during what will probably be the strangest Advent season of most of our <laughs> lives, I just yes. want to recommend this book. But I also want to thank you for taking the time to write it and for talking to us about it today. Oh, I loved it. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Scott Erickson. He's a touring painter, performance storyteller, and creative curate who mixes autobiography, biblical narrative, and visual aesthetics that speak to our deepest experiences. He's currently touring a multimedia storytelling piece, Say Yes, a liturgy of not giving up on yourself. And he's the co-author of Prayer, 40 Days of Practice, and May It Be So, 40 Days with the Lord's Prayer. We've been talking about a book that he has written and that he has illustrated that is coming out later this fall, Honest Advent, 25 Readings for Advent and Christmas. It is available for pre-order now. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's Facebook.com slash Things Not Seen Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>